The sermon this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come after those who come after. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are here this morning worshiping you. Help us to continue to do so as we dive into your word this morning. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give Pastor Kyle words of truth. Give us ears to hear and a heart that is obedient, waiting and willing. God, you have saved us from our sin, and because of that, we are here this morning as your children, listening. So speak to us this morning. Speak to us this morning, Lord, and give us strength and wisdom to respond. We love you. Amen. Good morning. We begin today uh, our series on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes means preacher. Uh, It comes from uh, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Israel. Ecclesiastes is an intriguing book, but at times it can leave us somewhat baffled. Uh, I think reading Ecclesiastes is like walking down a a city street and suddenly you're confronted by this wide-eyed bearded man who just is yelling at vanity of vanities. All things are vanity. Now, you're not sure what to do with them, but being a good Christian, you think, well, at least you should try to engage in conversation. So, you take him to a diner and buy him a sandwich. And while you're talking with him, uh, throughout his conversation, he keeps describing how everything is a vanity. These are some of the things he tells you. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? 
This is vanity. I hated all my toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet, he will be master of all for which I toiled. This also is vanity. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. All is vanity. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This also is a vanity. I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. And when the man is done, you think he's a little bit crazy, but he makes sense in some of what he says. All of those are quotes by the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet the preacher is not some wide-eyed mystic. He is a man who has learned from experience that life does not always seem fair. That there are many things that we go through that don't make sense and we can't fit into categories we have about what it should mean to be someone who follows God. And this is what happens in life. We, we're often bewildered because he is writing as a man who is a follower of God. Ecclesiastes is purposefully a confrontational and a provocative book. It is meant to make us stop and think. And as Christians, we would say, well, it's a good thing to be challenged in, in how we think. But the confusing part is that the observations that the preacher makes often don't seem to fit like what we would think the Bible would say to us. In fact, he seems rather cynical. And his conclusions bounce back and forth from pessimism, we're all going to die anyway. He says that quite a bit. And at other times, he sounds like a hedonist when he says, and so, eat, drink, and take joy in all your toil. He also says that quite a bit. What the preacher doesn't say, what he doesn't offer are light-hearted religious slogans. Instead, he, he steps into the messiness of life, and he acknowledges our perplexity by offering his own perplexity. But all along, he does have a purpose. He, he is leading us 
to have a healthier perspective of what does it mean to live life in this world. So how are we to interpret this book of Ecclesiastes? It is uh, Near Eastern uh, literature written thousands of years ago using forms of poetry that uh, we're not always used to. And he's coming to conclusions and offering guidance that doesn't fit all of our religious categories. But there are two answers that I'll give concerning how we're to understand and interpret Ecclesiastes as we go through it. And the first is the the big picture answer of how we are to understand it. And that is that the Bible from page one to the final page is the story of the gospel. Every page and sentence in the Bible is the story of God's good news to save us. The Bible begins by showing us how God made this world good, and yet mankind willfully rebelled, breaking their relationship with Him and and bringing rebelliousness into their own hearts. And so we have not only all mankind has been corrupted by sin, and all institutions in the world have been corrupted by sin, but the world itself, this physical world has been affected by it. And generations go by and we are helpless to change our condition. And and here humanity stands, sinners poisoning the world, our own souls, and and yet we are before a God who is perfect and holy and must judge all sin, which leaves us helpless under his condemnation. And yet, in an astonishing way, God demonstrated his love By God stepping into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his son. God became man so that he might, as a man, live a perfect life, the only one who ever did, and then went to the cross purposefully to die in our place. And as he died, he took our sin upon himself, and God the Father placed his punishment upon Christ for our sin. And whoever would acknowledge their need and recognize Christ is the way God has given to save us and be restored to him. He saves everyone who does that completely and forever. All of Scripture is telling that story in in different ways. Every book of the Bible is helping us to understand our need, God's answer, and how do we live then as those who love and follow God. And so Ecclesiastes is, is part of that in a way that's at times seems unusual. It is helping us understand our need for the gospel. The author is Solomon. In verse 1, he says, the preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
and throughout the first two chapters, how the preacher describes himself and his experience matches how the Bible describes the life of King Solomon. Now, there are some scholars who say that Ecclesiastes was written later and it couldn't have been Solomon, but even they will agree that whoever is the writer is adopting the persona of Solomon. So one way or the other, we are meant to understand this as Solomon, king of Israel, writing to us. Now, who was Solomon? What is his significance? He was the son of King David, and he reigned over Israel in their glory days. Solomon was the king of peace, of prosperity, of wisdom and power. He is the one who had it all. The Bible tells us that God specifically gave him a gifting of wisdom beyond the wisdom of anyone else in the world. That God blessed him with wealth that was staggering and defies imagination. Here is the man who is able by wealth and power and position to experience all that the world gives. And so he gave himself to that, including having a thousand wives, which you can make up your minds whether how you think that works with his wisdom or not. But he was of everyone who has lived in the world, the one who lived on the mountaintop of life by all the measurable categories that people have in the world. And yet, by his own admission, he could not find satisfaction for his own soul. And so, Solomon serves as a symbol in the Bible as human glory in all its vanity. That for all that he had, he could not solve life or make it work. And so what does he mean by this slogan he uses over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity, all is vanity. Uh, the word is often defined as, and, and actually some translations use the word meaningless or empty. All is meaningless, all is empty. And, and that is somewhat true. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word here, vanity, can be translated meaningless, empty, and particularly in the first two chapters, uh, that seems to be an accurate understanding of what he's conveying, but as we continue through the whole book, we see that when he says vanity, he doesn't always mean meaningless. Uh, that at times he's comparing things that do have meaning and things that don't. And so, just to think that vanity means everything is meaningless is not accurate to what he's conveying to us. The word also can be translated as breath or vapor. Something that is here and gone very quickly. And so together we see that vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, this slogan that the preacher has. 
is when he calls something vanity, he is speaking of what passes quickly, so we should not give undue attention or undue value to it because it's something that's here and gone. And if you're putting all of your heart on this, then there is going to be an emptiness because it's quickly gone. But there's more to the meaning of this word uh, that fits in the, the big picture understanding of the gospel in God's word. Uh, the Hebrew word used for vanity is the exact same word that's translated as a name in Genesis, the name Abel, who was the son of Adam and Eve. And his name Abel is just this word vanity in a a proper name form. Abel was the son of Adam and Eve who was murdered by his older brother Cain. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry. Verse 8, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail, but we see that both brothers, they made an offering to the Lord. Uh, Cain, who was a farmer, gave from the produce of the field. Abel, who was over the flocks, gave the sacrifice of an animal. And we know through the rest of Scripture that the appropriate sacrifice God required for repentance was that of an animal sacrifice. All of that was to symbolize what eventually would take place when Christ would be our sacrifice, that His blood would be the offering to pay for our sins. And so Abel gave the appropriate sacrifice that God asked for. Cain gave what he wanted, what fit his desire to do for God. And God did not receive it. But Cain, who already had a heart that was prideful, he was going to serve God the way he wanted, did not respond well to God's correction. And in envy, he actually murdered his brother. Cain tried to follow God in his own terms. He tried to make it work the way he wanted And that made him a corrupting force in the world. And so sin did to Abel what it does to all life in the world. Sin brings brevity and introduces sorrow into what God made good. Abel was a good and faithful man. Sin cut his life short and brought sorrow to those who loved him. And and that's what sin does. And sin is the rebellion against God. We're going to do 
our way what we want, including how we're going to follow God. And so vanity is, is a picture that even from the beginning of Scripture that shows the wrongness of when we seek our own way through life rather than what God has given. And so Ecclesiastes, this book displays our need for the answer that is only found in the gospel story. Even Solomon, who had it all, did not have answers for his own experience in life. And so this morning, if you have questions and you're trying to figure out what is happening in life and it doesn't make sense, there's an answer. And if your heart is filled with sorrow and weariness and you're not sure how to get out of it, there is an answer to all of that. And that answer is in the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ, because his coming is the gospel. Christ himself is the good news. He is God's answer. God did not give us an answer of do these things. He gave the answer of receive this person who has died for you. Follow him. Love him. Ecclesiastes, as it goes through the book, is wanting to confront us over and over with the reality that it doesn't matter what we do and what advantage we have, we're not going to figure it out and make it work. There's always going to be something missing. There's always going to be sorrow and injustice. So one way we interpret Ecclesiastes, like all Scripture, is to see how does it fit in the gospel story. The other way that we understand Ecclesiastes, a little bit more direct, is uh, that it gives us its own conclusion at the very end. The preacher waits to the last two verses to give us his conclusion to all that he says. And so we'll read that in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter all has been heard. So after he is describing at length all of the, the turmoil and perplexity of life, he says, this is the, the end conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This conclusion is what makes sense of the preacher's observations that he's making along the way. So when the preacher tells us over and over again, you're, you're all going to die anyway, it's because he wants to remind us that this life is temporary, that it is coming to a conclusion and it's inescapable. Death comes to all of us, and are we living now recognizing that death will come? And what death will bring is us face to face with God who is holy and perfect and just. 
And he's helping us to live with the knowledge of something we tend to push off and not want to think about, and that is life is coming to an end, and are we prepared for that? For at that moment when we are before God, how we interpret loss and gain will be completely changed. What most people consider to be gain now and what they're pursuing wholeheartedly will not mean anything when they stand before God. And much that seems lost now will understand to have been God's grace preparing us for when we see Him. And when preacher says, eat, drink, and find joy in all your toil, uh, he is encouraging God's people uh, that although we have real sorrows now, and there's a lot we don't understand about what God is doing and how he's doing it, we do know God. And we know his character, and we know his gospel, and we know his promise. And so in the midst of knowing about God, and we know how everything ends, and so we're able to enjoy the graces God gives us day by day, the common graces in this physical world that anyone can enjoy, and the gospel graces of God's presence always with us, of all of our life taking place in his hands, of his covenant promise to complete his work in us, of the hope that we will be in his presence. The graces of this world, the graces of the gospel are things we can take joy in even when we don't understand why everything is as it is. And even when things are are painful, what we know allows us to still take joy in the goodness of God day by day. Solomon simplifies this complicated life. And life is often very complicated. But we enter the day, we're trying to figure out how we're going to get everything done and how we're going to get this person who's obstinate to kind of come along and how are we going to break this news to that person and it's all complicated, how we're going to make it fit. And the preacher says, brush that aside and recognize this is what you need to do entering every day. My duty today, love and honor God. That's our job each day. That's the heart of it. If today we love and honor God, God says that's a good day. He is pleased. And yes, we have all sorts of responsibilities, duties we have to carry out, but we entered our day taking everything on our shoulders. We have to figure it out. And we go through our day with the burden of making it work, and God says, I never asked you to do that. What I've said is, I call upon you, this is your labor, that you would love and obey me, and I will carry you, and I'm going I'm to fill in the cracks, and I'm going to go ahead of you, and you're not going to see how it's all working. I will be faithful. God 
means for this complicated world to begin to simplify in our minds when we see our purpose, our job, what makes life good is completely encased in live for the Lord Jesus Christ and life will work because that's what we were designed for. That's what we're here for, to know him and to live for him. And so that not only will satisfy our soul because our soul was made to be in relationship with God, but God will also reveal himself by being faithful in the details of life, not instantly turning it all easy, but always being faithful and fruitfully using us. And so let's apply this framework then to chapter 1. And if you're starting to think, whoa, wait a minute, time out. I mean, all that was introduction? I mean, we're just now starting the sermon? You didn't know today was going to be such a good day. That was just the introduction. Now the sermon starts. But this is actually the shorter part. So don't be in despair. In verse 3, the preacher asked the question, what do we gain by all of our toil and labor under the sun, meaning in this life and world? The word gain there implies the idea of a surplus. It's not just the gain of meeting bills. It is building up for the future, having extra. So what do we gain by building up and trying to make a life that is all that we want? And as we spend our life trying to do that, Preacher throws a wrench into our confidence that we actually can do that. Because throughout this first section, he gives us these kinds of thoughts. Verse 4, generations come and go, which means, and you will too. You're going to come and you're going to go. Verses 5 to 7, the sun rises and sets. The winds go around the world and then come back and do it again. The streams keep flowing into the sea, which doesn't fill up, and the streams keep flowing. What is, he means by this is that the world keeps marching on whether you're in it or not. Everything keeps going as God created, and you enter at some point and you leave, and the world goes on and barely notices. He says in verses 9 and 10, if you think you're doing something new and special, and everyone should praise you for what you've done in the world, he says, it's all been done before. Is there a thing of which it's said, see this is new? It has already been done in the ages before. We may bring a new twist to how we do it, but what each generation does, the generation before, they've already done it. 
So he's letting each new generation know which thinks it's smarter and better. No, you're not. And then he, he ends the section of verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who will come after. So basically he's saying, eventually everything you do in this life will be forgotten. And there'll come a time when no one remembers you. You don't want to invite preacher to a dinner party at your house. Unless you want to chase everyone out fast. He sounds like the comedian Louis C.K. who described the meaning of life this way. You just feel kind of satisfied with your stuff and then you die. That's what preacher is saying. The crescendo of this description of life that he gives us in these verses is verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with all that it sees. The ear not satisfied with all that it hears. All is filled with weariness. So basically, preacher is telling us your life takes place on a hamster wheel. And you think you're getting somewhere? Just like the, ham the ham hamsters don't do that. They don't think they're working out. No hamster jumps on the wheel. Yeah, I wanna get some exercise. They're trying to get somewhere. You think you're getting somewhere. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, no, you're not. You're just on the hamster wheel spinning and spinning like everyone else. And then he moves on. That's it. The next verse, 12, begins another section. And he starts making another point. So, all of this to say, you live on a hamster wheel, now I'm going to pick up another subject. And you're left, what, what do I do with that? He just leaves us dangling because he wants to make us think. He doesn't jump ahead and pull for us his final conclusions in early. So, oh, okay, that's the point. He just lets us hang there wondering, well, what is life about? What does he mean by that? There are many approaches that you can take to make life work. You can be a control freak. Sure, there's none of those here. See, that's all you had to do. You find out the spouses of all the control freaks when you say that. Or you can be a workaholic. You can be a shark tank visionary or someone who's just live and let live. You can be a cynic, a people pleaser, leader, or a follower. You can be a person whose philosophy is I live for the weekend. 
You can be someone who's trying to grab your 15 minutes of fame and anything to be on reality TV. Or you may be the person who ends up with the most toys. You may find your comfort in food, sports, alcohol, sex, gaming, friends, relationships. There are all of these approaches to life, how you're going to live, who you're going to be. And preachers letting us know, none of it lasts. And so none of it works. None of it works. And certainly none of it impresses God. So how about thinking of a different approach to fully give your heart to love God.